So this morning, I'm excited. I've been mentioning this, mentioned this last week, and some of you know that um, my dad is actually going to be preaching today. I'm not. So, and uh, so just be, before he comes, uh, just kind of to set up a reminder, we are in the series called Resurgence. We've been walking through the book of Acts, and, uh, and so we've been going passage by passage and, and asking the question, what, what, was, what did the church look like 2,000 years ago, and what does that mean for us today and how we are reflective of what the church that we're supposed to be? The passage that we come to today in Acts chapter 11 is the foundational passage for the name of our church, Antioch Church. And so I knew as this was coming, I wanted my dad to speak for a number of reasons. Obviously, you hear all these stories about him, and they're all true because he's amazing. But because, and I I need you to hear me, I'm not saying this because I wish I could have somebody who wasn't me doing this introduction because they would say the same thing. Uh, My father has had profound uh, influence in our own Foursquare movement because of the way God has worked in his life and, and in terms of understanding missions and understanding how the book of Acts actually lays out a blueprint for the modern day church on how actually Foursquare Missions does missions globally. And so today I want you to kind of shift your brains just a little bit, okay? Because what we, we do have been doing through the series is that we are kind of hanging out on the ground level, the ground floor. And now I'm asking us, we're going to go up about five or 10,000 feet and look at the bigger picture of what really is happening as you go through the book of Acts. And then when you get to Antioch Church, what does that mean for the blueprint that's set for that church? And what does that mean for us? So can, can we go up a little higher? You know when you're flying and you can see things like from a further distance, you don't see as much detail, but you get the bigger picture. Anybody enjoy flying? Okay, I do as well. So that's kind of what I want you to, to have in, in your mind today as my dad comes and speaks. So, so just so you know, his name is John, but he was the first one before me. So his is, he's John L., and I'm John A., but he's still John Amstead. So John Amstead is speaking this morning. So would you welcome my dad as he comes and shares today? Now, I don't know what stories he's talked about. but I've heard some, and uh, some I remember and some I don't. (laughs) Selective memory. (laughs) It is great to be here. It really is. And uh, ever since John talked to me several months ago about coming, uh, I thought, Lord, you've got something you want to do here, and you're already doing it, and I just want to stoke the fire. (laughs) And... uh, so we're in the book of Acts, and uh, we're in chapter 11, so if you'll turn your Bible to the 19th verse, or whatever you have to turn it in, <laughs> your app or your smartphone or your dumb, we, we only have a dumb phone. <laughs> it doesn't do anything except what a normal telephone does, receive and send calls. But uh, anyway, whatever it is, Acts chapter 11, verse 19. <clears throat> Now, I think I'm going to read the entire passage. Uh, Last week, we covered 66 verses (laughs) in chapters 10 and 11 of the story of Cornelius. And I'm only going to cover 16. Um, So, chapter 11, verse 19. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, which would be modern-day Lebanon, the island of Cyprus, and Antioch, which is now in Turkey, but it was then in Syria, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, which is North Africa, went to Antioch and began to speak also to the Greeks, 
telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Emperor Claudius. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. I want to make five observations about the church in Antioch. It was a witnessing church. It was a discipling church. It was a, uh, a loving church. It was a giving church, and it was a sending church. Now, if I don't get to those five points, those are my five points, okay? <laughs> <coughs> Antioch was a major city. Uh, there were really four great cities in the Roman Empire. There was Constantinople, there was Alexandria, Alexandria in North Africa, Rome, of course, and then Antioch. Antioch was about 500,000 people, which is very large in that day. Uh, and um, under the Romans, they enjoyed a, a, a status of being a free, uh, free city. And uh, they were an autonomous city, self-governing had a mixed population of Jews, Greeks, Romans, Syrians, Latins, and even Orientals from Persia, India, and China. It was a very cosmopolitan, multinational city. It was also an important commercial center located on the Orontes River with a seaport, Seleucia, and uh, some 15 miles uh, west of it. And, uh, by the way, Antioch got its name from uh, a fellow named Seleucus Nicator. Uh, he was one of four generals of Alexander the Great. And he named these uh, Antiochs, and there were more than 15 Antiochs. We only meet two of them in the New Testament, Antioch and Pisidia, which is central Turkey, and this Antioch, which is in northern Syria. And he, he named them after his father. So, and so that's where it came from, Antiochus, Antioch. And uh, then he named the seaport, which was downriver, about 15 miles from uh, uh, Antioch, after himself, Seleucia. His name was Seleucus. So that's how they got the names. Anyway, the city was called Antioch the Beautiful. It was noted for its architecture, paved streets, public uh, and private baths. Listen to this, central heating, plumbing, and lighting, as unusual. Now, not as you understand, you know, gas and power today, but they, they had a way of lighting the city. And that's why it, it was a city that stayed up late at night. That's often when the partying took place and so forth. And uh, the city was known for its luxurious living, had a reputation for moral laxity. 
the pleasure garden of Daphne and the temple of Apollo, which included ritual temple prostitutions, were located just five, mile, five miles south of Antioch. It was a major center in the Roman Empire, and it was going to become a key center in the spread of the gospel. Now, last week you covered the story of Cornelius, the Roman centurion, who was what we call a God-fearer. He had converted to Judaism, and so he would be attending the synagogues. And so he was a fearer of, of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he had a vision one day. He was taking the Jews normally pray three times a day, and he was at one of his prayer times, and he had a vision of an angel who said, I want you to, you should call Simon Peter. He has a message for you, and I'll tell you where he lives. He was down in Joppa at the house of a tanner. And so that prepares him, and he sends his delegation down. And meanwhile, Peter, who's down in Joppa, needs to be prepared. And so the Lord has, gives Peter a vision, and he's up on the housetop, and he's at noon praying. You know, the Jews are very consistent in the way they, they, they how can I use it, spiritual disciplines? They pray. And so Peter was praying up on the rooftop, waiting for lunch, and the Lord gave him a free lunch. You know, pigs in a blanket. <laughs> Three times. Rise and eat. And Peter was shocked. I've never eaten anything that's not kosher. I don't eat that kind of stuff. Don't you call unclean what I've cleansed. And so he's getting him ready to meet the delegation of Cornelius' household. Now, Peter, is, he's amazed. when His opening words, how's this for an introduction when you have a guest speaker? I'm not supposed to be here. <laughs> You're not my kind of people. However, God told me that I was supposed to come, so why have I come? Tell me why I'm here. And he begins to preach the gospel. He doesn't even get through his message, and the Holy Spirit falls on the whole entire household. And uh, he said, whoa, I, wouldn't that be wonderful to see a message interrupted by the Holy Spirit? It never happened this morning. Anyway, um, <laughs> and uh, so he, who am I to de deny what God's doing? He gave him the same spirit that he gave us when we believed. And so obviously they're included in God's family. And so they were baptized and they were welcomed into the family of God. So he repeats the whole story in chapter 11 to the people at Jerusalem, the apostles. You know, this is amazing. And they, they came to the conclusion, right, it appears that God is now granting repentance to the Gentiles. That's the verse just before the one that we read. In verse 18, it says, when they heard this, they had no further objections, praised God, saying, so then God has even, has even granted the Gentiles repentance unto life. And so it was that the gospel now was coming to people who had been dispersed because of the persecution under Stephen's death. Now, we know the story in chapter 8. I think John Looney preached on this. In chapter 8, that uh, uh, Philip went down to Samaria. Samaria is not very far from Jerusalem, all of 20, 25 miles to the north. But it took him about seven or eight years to get there. wonder why it took him so long. And it took a persecution to get him out there. And then beyond that, there were people who were scattered, it says here, from they were scattered from to Phoenicia. They went to Phoenicia. They went to Cyprus and Antioch. But they were only speaking then to people that were of their own kind, Jews speaking to Jews. These were Messianic Jews. They had come to understand who Jesus is the Messiah. And so they're preaching to their own people. And 
Then there were some that came from North Africa, it says Cyrene, as well as from the island of Cyprus, and they began to preach. Now, not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews, to the non-kosher people, to those people. Amazing. Wonder why they did that. Well, the Holy Spirit had filled them too, and they too, therefore, had a heart a little bit bigger than just for love, for love for their own people. They had the love of God in their heart. And uh, so they, as, they, as they preached, why it says here in verse uh, 20, it says, part verse 21, the Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed in the Lord. Now that great number doesn't say just Gentiles, but it probably was largely Gentiles because Jews had barely been believing. By the way, the Jewish community was very large in Antioch, it was probably 25,000 people at least. And so there are probably many, many synagogues. It doesn't say this, but my guess is the initial preaching was in the synagogue to the Jews. That was very typical. By the way, Paul constantly did that. He'd go to his own people. And he did this not only because this is you know, kind of the way we, uh, we, birds of a feather flock together. We like to be their own kind of people. But also, he went there because he believed God told him to do that. Because he said, I preached the gospel to the Jews first and then to the Greeks. Now, not to the Jews only. Now, here we see it's also to the non-Jews as well. And so it is. They're preaching, and a great number come to the Lord. And so this word gets back to Jerusalem, and they have to send somebody down to see what's going on, just like they did when they heard the Samaritans, of all people, were coming to faith in Christ. In Samaria, they sent Peter and John down. And so now they send Barnabas. Barnabas is that guy that you met way back in chapter 4, that he had lands and he sold and he gave the proceeds to help the feed the needy widows in Jerusalem, and in contrast to Ananias and Sapphira. And uh, that was a dramatic story, wasn't it? <laughs> and so uh, this is the man. And he's the fellow also that introduced Paul, Paul, Saul, to the disciples or to the apostles in Jerusalem. Because they didn't believe that, that really he was converted. This is the persecutor. We know who he is. And you're telling us that he's now... Uh, preaching the gospel, and, and the apostles initially didn't believe it. But it was, it, was Barnabas, it was Barnabas that basically introduced him to the apostles. And they, they understood then that truly this man had come to faith in Christ. This is the Barnabas that comes. Now it says here in verse 23, when he arrived, he saw the evidence of the grace of God. You bet it's the grace of God. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God to save anybody who believes to Jews and Gentiles alike. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. That is an amazing statement. The grace of God is absolutely amazing. And it's open to everybody. And that's, it's not just for a certain special group of people. God so loved what? The world, didn't he? And, you know, people, I'm going to take a little side here. But, you know, you get this idea, you know, you people who believe in Jesus, you say he's the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to get to God. What a narrow-minded attitude that is. You're so bigoted. You ever heard that one? I hear it all the time. They misunderstand. It's, it's totally different. When, when the gospel comes, it says God receives you where you are, who you are. He doesn't require anything of you that you have to qualify to be qualified to receive his salvation. Whether you're rich or poor, young or old, male or female, whatever nationality, whatever religion you are. Now that's very different. 
If you're a Buddhist, what do you have to do? You've got to find the Eightfold Path. You've got you to practice the Buddhist religion. So if Buddhism is the way to get to God, then you've got to be a what? A good Buddhist. Ask an average Buddhist, how good are you? Well, are you perfect? You ever, you ever did anything wrong? No, there are no good Buddhists. They're perfect, that is. So that's the only way to get to God. If you're a Hindu, what do you have to do? You hope that your karma is not too bad, and, that you, you know, and then you have to go reborn again, you know, and again and again and again. And, and so you've got to go through that cycle. Uh, and so if you're a Hindu, you've got to be a, a good Hindu to make it to heaven. If you're a Muslim, you've got to keep the five things of the Islamic faith. And you talk to the average Muslim, they're not certain they're going to make it. But God doesn't ask you, are you a Buddhist, are you a Hindu, are you a Muslim? There's no requirement. It's open to all. You see, the gospel opens up the door to everybody. It's only one door, but it's open to everybody. The gospel is so wide. I'm telling you, God's grace is so great that he doesn't exclude anybody. Oh, if people just understood that. I'm not asking you to change religions. I'm asking you to change relationships. You're coming to faith in Christ. You're getting to know the true and living God. You're getting to know your creator who has made all things and made you for himself. And he wants you and his family. That's the grace of God. And it's a gift of righteousness. Right standing with God is a gift. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. You can't pay for it. It's absolutely free. That is absolutely amazing. How can God offer that? Because of his son. Because his son paid the price for our sin. And so it is, God can offer free salvation to everyone. So the gospel, by the way, is the widest, broadest door there is in a sense. It's the only door, but it's broad. Everybody can come in. Does that make sense? Yeah. God doesn't say, what religion are you? Did you live up to it? He doesn't even talk about Buddhism and all the other religions. Oh, that what, I'm telling you, pardon me on that aside, but I just had to say that. <laughs> but this is the gospel that's being preached to these people. And these Gentiles were coming to faith in Christ. And so it is, they, they call Barnabas. And when he comes, he sees God has done something wrong. There were such changed lives. They saw the grace of God was on these people. And he encouraged them to do what? It says here, to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Remain true to the Lord with all your heart. This is what we get now getting into what we call discipleship. It was not only a winning church. And by the way, people were coming to Christ in large numbers, not because they had large evangelistic crusades. I'm not saying anything negative about that. I'm simply saying that's not what they did. It was the witness. This was a witnessing church. It was through the normal people. Listen, we don't even know who the people were who brought the gospel to Antioch. We don't, they're nameless people. They're people that were dispersed by the persecution, but they shared the gospel. And the people they shared it with, they start sharing it. You couldn't keep those people quiet. We cannot speak of the things but what we've seen and heard. It's like the apostles. They're ignorant and unlearned men. Where did they learn all this stuff? And so it was. They were just being witnesses. What did Jesus say would happen when the Holy Spirit comes upon us? You shall be my witnesses, beginning where you are, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You don't have to be, you don't should be, you ought to be, you will be. You will be. I'm going to make another side now, okay? What? 
Why, can, why did he say you will be? Because you just received the same spirit that was in Jesus. This is the other comforter. Jesus said, I'm leaving, but I'm not going to leave you orphaned. I'm going to give you another comforter. He's going to be just like I was. Why, when Jesus came to earth, why did he just, why, why was it that when he was baptized in the water and the spirit of God filled him, he then began to do what? Seek and save the lost. That's why he came. I came to seek and save the lost. He had the ghost spirit in him. Where did he get the ghost spirit? From the father who loved the world so much, he sent his son. That spirit is within us. We can't help but do it. We can't help but want to share it with other people. It's supernaturally natural. And I'm not talking about going witnessing. I'm talking about being a witness. What you got out there, I love it. That's a good way of saying, what is a true follower of Jesus, a disciple? It's being with Jesus. It's becoming like Jesus and then going for Jesus, right? That's what a disciple is. And when you get filled with the Spirit and you keep walking in the Spirit, it's amazing. It just, it just it comes out of you. You're salt and light. You don't have to figure out, oh, let's see, today. No, you're just who you are. You are what you are. You're a, you're a reflection of Jesus. What did Jesus say about himself? Don't, show me the Father. He that has seen me, what? Has seen the Father. And somebody that sees you is seeing what Jesus is like. Listen to this idea that people say, I like Jesus, but I don't like the church. They're missing it. How can you love the bride and not the bridegroom? Or love the bridegroom and not the bride? And so, Lord, help us to be like Jesus. Now, we're not perfect, but we sure are different. We sure are different. In fact, one of the things that's happening today around the world, and it's happening in particularly in tough areas of the world, is that people are coming to Christ because of the transformed living of believers, of disciples, of followers of Jesus. It's, perhaps, it's happening in Africa, North Africa, and Sub-Sahara, among Muslim groups. It's happening in, in, in India, up in the northern part, which is strong Muslim and Hindu. It's happening in Buddhist countries, that people are coming to faith in Christ because they're seeing a transformation, a change in the people that call themselves followers. Wow. That's, uh, listen, what many, listen, I came to Christ because I saw Jesus in my parents. They didn't appreciate me. They just lived it. And they, the way they, the way they treated, the way they treated us, the way they related to each other, uh, the way they did their business and so forth, they were like light and salt. Jesus said, you are, you don't become, you are the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works, your good works, and glorify your Father in heaven. And you're the salt of the earth. We're just, it, it says when we speak, it's be like seasoned with salt. And so the way we talk, the way we walk, that 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 prepares people to hear the gospel. They want to know why are you doing that? Why are you so different? You ever had that question asked you? Lord, I want more people to ask me that question. <laughs> and so it is. We have the same spirit that was in Jesus and transformed living. This, this was a discipling church. Look what it says here in verse 25. Then Barnabas, well, let me back up. It says here, when he arrived, he saw the evidence of the grace of God. And it says he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, faith, and a great number of people of that Lord. So there was another, another wave of evangelism that took place, of, of, of bearing witness for Christ. 
and many people who are coming to Christ. In fact, now what are you going to do with all these people? We've got all these babies, now we've got to get them to grow. Listen, it's, it's simpler to be an, a an obstetrician than a pediatrician. You can have a baby, now you've got to raise them. Now, that's what discipleship is. <laughs> and how do you do it? Well, you begin to teach and train them. How did the early church disciple? They didn't even have a New Testament. People say, I want to be a New Testament church. Okay, then give me your New Testament. You can't have it. They didn't have a New Testament. What did they have? How did they disciple people? It says, Jesus said, teaching them to observe, put into practice all that I've commanded. They had the words of Jesus. And so they just taught what Jesus taught. What would happen? What is happening with people who are exposed and introduced to who Jesus is and how, he, how, how he's taught us to live? Wow, what if people live the golden rule? Huh, wouldn't that be something? What if they prayed for their enemies? Wouldn't that be even <laughs> amazing? You know, start living like Jesus, being like Jesus, being with him, become like him. And so they were teaching them what Jesus had taught them. Look what it says here. It says, then the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. It was not only a witnessing church, it was a discipling church, but it now also is a loving church, a church that's unity. There's, there's one, it, when I say unity, I mean they were one. They were multicultural, but they were, there was a unity, there was a loving unity among these people. And they were called Christians. You say, where do you get that? The word Christian is made up of two different languages. It's made up of Greek and Latin. Christos is the word for Christ, the Messiah, and the I-A-N on the end is a Latin ending. So it, it two, two languages were used to describe these multicultural people, Jew and Gentile alike. And they were, they were one. And by the way, the unity, the, church, the unity of the church is something that is constantly on the heart of, of Paul when he's talking to the churches, that they would be one in Christ. I know there are Gentiles. I know there are Jews. I know there's male and females. You can't deny that, but that's transcended in the larger reality that we are one in Christ. And Jesus prayed this last prayer. Man, when you think of what Jesus, knowing he's going to die, what would be on his heart when he's talking to his father? He prays for what? The unity of his followers. That they would be one as we are one. Why? That the world would believe. Man, I was, in my, I was stabbed in my heart when I was in India one day. And uh, this, when this, this guy in India, he wasn't a believer, and he knew I was a Christian. And, you know, he said to me, he said, when you Christians start loving each other, man, we'll listen to you. What did Jesus say? By this, all men will know you're my disciples of what? You go to church. You tithe. No. You love one another. Now, you know, you guys, how many of you got kids? How many of you got more than one? What's one of the challenges you face? Love one another. <laughs> Do you think they're ever going to? I mean, I, we have four kids. He's the last one. <laughs> After that, we said, that's enough. <laughs> no, I was wrong, Jeff. But uh, will they ever love each other? So, you, so by this shall men know that you are my disciples if you love each other. You do what's best for the other person. You, you meet their needs. You care for them. Uh, you have compassion. And so this was a church that was a united church. And I'm telling you, that's one of the reasons the church is effective is when it's, we're not just bearing witness, but we're doing it as a group of people that are one in Christ. Boy, there would, wouldn't that be a testimony a day in our country with all that we've got going on with immigration and so forth? 
I tell you, and I said this in the first service, and I probably get myself in trouble in the second service too, but whether, I don't care how they get here. I believe God's sending them, whether it's legal or illegally, according to American laws. I believe God is sending the nations to us to reach them. And so we must, we must love these people. And so the Lord is calling us to do that. Uh, in my own in my own country, in my own town. I live in Fresno, California, which is the unknown city between San Francisco and Los Angeles in the Central Valley. And on my street alone, there are seven different nationalities. I mean, they come from West Pal uh, the West Bank and Palestine. They come from China. They come from Korea. They come from Mexico. They come from Japan. They come from uh, Laos. And then there's one of them I forgot. Now, we're to love those people. And it's, it's more powerful when they find out that these Christians who are all these different backgrounds and various ethnic groups, that they're one. They, they, they love each other. They are, they are people of compassion. It's a powerful witness. And Lord, unite your church that our witness might be more effective. Anyway, I was preaching there. <laughs> now, it was, <laughs> somebody said, finally, okay. Um, <laughs> A witnessing church, a church that is a discipling church, teaching church, and then a church that is unified, it's a loving church, and then it was a giving church. Look what it says in verse 27. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, one of them Agabus, through the Spirit predicted there'd be a famine. Sounds much like what happened with Joseph, you know, where the, where the Pharaoh had these dreams of uh, plenty and want, and so there was a famine coming. And there's going to be seven years of plenty and then seven years of a famine. And so what did they do? Well, these people did the same thing. Let's collect some kind of resources to make possible to help those who are going to be in need. And so it was that they did this. It says here this, uh, that the disciples, each according to his ability. Look, at it was no heavy-handed thing. Each according to his ability. Some had ability to give more, some less. But each disciple, according to his ability, they decide to provide help for their brothers living in Judea. This is a giving church. It's a compassionate church. I tell you, God's people are giving people. By the way, it's another thing you want to do when you work with your kids, right? You want, to be, you want them to love one another as well as what? To be givers, not just takers. And I can remember the, when the early Christmases, you know, when our girls, they, John had three older sisters. And um, it was wonderful to watch them happen when they just didn't get excited about getting gifts, but they had, this guy, they had some allowance money, and they went and bought gifts for their brother or sisters, you know. And they couldn't, you know, we, we, and, you know they get excited you know, when they get their own gifts. Then they got much more excited when they said, open mine, open mine, open mine. Do you like it? Do you like it? You know, and they're earning to be givers. People will give because they have received so much. All that we received, you know. What did Jesus say? It's more blessed to give than to get. Look what we've received. We've received salvation, full, free. Oh, God, thank you. We, we can't but help give ourselves and give it to others. And so this is a very giving church. And this is a giving church. You, a bus? That cost a bit of money, didn't it? You raised, what, $20,000 in three weeks or something like that? It was amazing. And that's not the only time you've given. You've received gifts from other churches, but you've also given, too. And this is amazing. This is what this church did. And by the way, Paul on his missionary journeys, he'll do it again. He will take offerings from the churches like in Macedonia, 
and from down in, in the bottom part of Greece and from other churches to send money to take it into Jerusalem because they were in need. And so the, a giving church is a sign God has done something. <laughs> Listen, we are selfish people. You know, when your kids are born, they think the whole world's about them. That's all they know. They're on the receiving end of everything. There's not, not much they can do for themselves. But they discover that they're a part of a family that's larger than they are. They're a part of a world that's bigger than their little world. And so they learn to love that world. They learn to be givers. They learn to be people that, out of their compassion, out of their heart of love, they give. This was a giving church. And then it says the last thing, which I'm not supposed to cover today, but I'm going to do it anyhow. Um, <laughs> It's in chapter 13. It's the first four verses. Let me, first three verses. Can I just read this? In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, separate for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and they sent them off. This is the first time we see the church voluntarily, voluntarily going. Now, the Jerusalem church involuntarily went because of persecution. Aren't you glad? We wouldn't be sitting here today if it all just stayed in Jerusalem or in Judea. Why, it'd just be a sect in Judaism. But now it's going universal, and we're seeing how that's beginning to unfold. And so this church will become a mission sending church. They'll send workers. They sent Saul and Barnabas. And this is the first of three journeys that Paul would take with various co-workers to bring the gospel to those who had never yet heard. And uh, so uh, that's the Antioch back there. But there are Antiochs today. And uh, let me talk a little bit about that. Uh, let me talk about the book of Acts. Uh, pre if there's, find the, find the, uh, one that talks about, uh, I'm, I'm talking to Harold. <laughs> the one that talks about descriptive and prescriptive. There we go. The book of Acts described what happened in the early days of the church. So people say, well, that's not prescriptive. You can't prescribe that for today. We can't, re we can't reinvent what went on back then. And in a sense, that's true. Like, it's interesting, the comment that J.B. Phillips made when he was translating the New Testament. That was one of the earliest modern translations in the English language of the, of the Bible. He was doing the New Testament. This was back in the 40s and 50s. And when he was translating Acts, this is what he said. He said, when translating the book of Acts, it felt like rewiring an old house with electricity on. Now, we can't reinvent and, and kind of reestablish the old house, but what about the electricity? What about the power? What about a resurgence of power? That's, I think, what's, what the Lord is saying to us. And that is, that, that is something that is for today. And there are certain patterns that follow where that power flows. Interesting experience when we were on the mission field in Jamaica. Jamaica is just, just south of Cuba, and it's a tropical island. And a bad year would be less than 40 inches of rain. 40 inches of rain. We're in the middle of a downpour, of a tropical downpour, and we can't get any water out of our, out of our shower head. I'm standing in the shower, trying to take a shower, and it's drip, 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 drip. And I said, there's something wrong with this. There's so much water outside and nothing on the inside. What's, going, what's the problem here? 
Well, there was a leak in the, in the reservoir, and all the water was running out to the sea. Well, see, it's one thing to have a downpour, but how do you then take care? Uh, how do you get a flow going? By the way, we got the same problem in Central Valley. We got, listen, we've got sufficient rain in California. It's just that it mostly is in the northern end. So we have these huge aqueducts that bring the water down to us here in the south. And so it is that, that there are aqueducts that the Lord kind of built into the early church that caused the flow to continue. And there are four things in the, in, 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 that we find in Acts that continue the flow. Four things are infinitely reproducible. You get one, you're going to get two, you're going to get three, you're going to get four, you're going to get first generation, second generation, third, and it keeps going. Disciples is the first one. That's stage one. We initiate by preaching the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit, and people become disciples. What's a disciple? Listen, we get a lot of decisions, but not very many disciples. But that's changing. People are becoming followers of Jesus. They're being with him. They're becoming like him. They're going for him. And so it is, making disciples. A disciple reproduces. When Jesus called the 12, what did he say? Come follow me and what will I do for you? I'll make you what? Fishers of men. What do fishers of men do? They fish for people. And Jesus was a great example of fishing. And here are these commercial fishermen, at least, at least four of them were, of the 12. And he said, come learn of me. Here's a carpenter teaching the fishermen how to fish. And he knew where the fish were. They fished all night and caught nothing. Put your nets on the other side. Twice that happened. They caught so many fish, they could hardly contain it. And so Jesus, he, he's, he's an example. Listen, I love the way that Jesus fished. He fished with nets, not hooks. He wasn't a sport fisherman. He was a commercial fisherman. Why do commercial fishermen use nets? Because they come in schools. You know, fish, you know, get one, you can get a whole bunch. Well, listen, if you're even fishing by hooks, you, you, you know, if you're smart, you look where the, on the lake, where are all the fishermen? That's where you go because the fish are biting, and there's more than one down there. And so Jesus taught us to fish with nets, and that's what the, discipleship is fishing with nets because follow me. If you're going to be my disciple, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. You're going to reproduce your own kind. You're going to make disciples because you are one. How do you know when you have a disciple? When you begin to produce disciples. Now, as you're producing disciples, something else is happening. You're also, you're also making leaders. When the disciples were following Jesus, they were learning what leadership was about. Now, they had the wrong kind in mind. You know, can I sit on the right hand or the left hand? No, 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 no. You guys, it's not a power play. It's not position. It's servanthood. And so Jesus would wash feet. Wow, a foot-washing leader. How's that? <laughs> well, anyway, that doesn't make much sense to us in our culture because we don't have sand and sandals. But listen, it made a lot of sense back then. But how do we serve other people? A servant leader. And so you begin to multiply leaders. In the early church, when they had to go from 12 apostles to seven more, what did they get these guys to do? They had to help serve, they had to help serve the people that were in need. That's leadership. That's leadership, like Jesus. He came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. And so they're learning leadership. And by the way, leaders tend to multiply leaders. A leader's not just a leader because he got somebody following him. He's a leader because he's producing, reproducing himself. How do you know you got an apple tree? Unless it produces apples. 
it reproduces. And what out of that apple comes what? A seed that then produces another tree that produces, you know, and it goes on and it goes. Reproducing disciples, reproducing leaders, and then reproducing groups. Because what do the leaders do? They lead groups. And in the early church, they multiply groups all the time. We often look at the, the church, we say, oh, the church in Antioch, that must have been a big church. I wonder how big the sanctuary was. They were all a bunch of house churches. They were a bunch of small groups. It's like your community groups. That was the church. Now, they'd get together every now and then, I'm sure, but that was the church, and there was only one church. It was the church made up of all these different groups, and they multiplied groups. Paul would never leave a city without planning groups or churches. And churches tend to what? Multiply other churches. That's the idea. And so when Paul would evangelize, and it's very interesting, in Ephesus, he was there for two years, and he never left town, and it says all of the province heard the gospel. Not through Paul, but through the leaders he raised up and the churches they planted in Laodicea, in Colossae, and Hierapolis, and in the seven churches of Revelation. That's where they came from out of that two-year ministry that Paul had in Ephesus where they sent out leaders, disciples, and they then planted all these groups. And then the last thing is multiplying disciples, multiplying leaders, multiplying churches or groups, and then multiplying mission-sending people, churches that send out workers, that go beyond their group. That's what, that's what multiplies. That's, these are the channels, these are the aqueducts from the downpour of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And it continued to flow. And look, we did a study uh, of uh, the churches around the world in Foursquare. Foursquare right now is in 146 countries. We did a study of why do some churches grow and others don't? Why do some to be, seem to be healthier than others? And we discovered that it's basically the pattern of the book of Acts that they're following. That they're not just having evangelistic crusades, they're making disciples. Yeah, because reprodu re disciples reproduce. And by the way, you know what the first, the first sign of a disciple is? Jesus said it. Teach, it says, you, you do this, you teach them after this has happened. It says, proclaim the good news of the gospel and then baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. One of the first signs of a follower of Jesus, and they're obedient, is they are baptized. There was no such thing in the early church as an unbaptized follower of Jesus. They all got baptized. On the day of Pentecost, how much did they know? 3,000 of them were convicted in their heart. And they received the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And then they were baptized. How did they do it? How do you baptize 3,000 people in one day? I have no idea. Let me invite it up and see. There are 12 apostles. They did have to invite up. Each of them baptized about it. No, I don't know how they did it. But they did it. And by the way, when they did it, listen, go to Acts 2, 38 and 39. What shall we do? They said. You've laid us a heavy trip on us. You said we just killed our Messiah. What shall we do? We'll repent. Turn around, change your mind, repent, put your faith in Christ and be baptized. And then what will happen if you do those two things? You will receive the same gift that we did. You'll receive the gift of the Father. And so on that day of Pentecost, not just 120 in the upper room got filled with the Spirit, 3,000 got filled with the Spirit apparently. They received the same gift. Listen, when people get baptized, that's when they should get filled with the Holy Spirit. Because they're getting rid of all the other spirits. We don't just want a clean house with nobody in it. 
And so what did Jesus say what happens if you cast something out of somebody and, you'll, and nothing comes back in? Seven worse ones come in. No, get filled with the Spirit. By the way, I learned this. I was working with a bunch of dra- uh, druggies when I was working with Teen Challenge. And I tell you, that was during the Jesus movement. And uh, I, 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 I recall seeing thousands of these kids baptized in the Pacific Ocean. But I'm telling you, we, we taught them we taught them that when you will go down that water and you come out of the water, the same thing should happen to you that happened to Jesus. The Spirit comes down and fills you. So I began to teach them that. And I can recall baptizing them. Now, this wasn't in the ocean. This was in a sanctuary, in a baptistry. And so I taught them that as, as you now have put your faith in Jesus Christ and you're now dying to your old way of living and coming alive to a new life in Christ, you're going to get filled with the Spirit. So I wouldn't let them out of the baptistry. I'd just lay my hands on them and say, well, Holy Spirit, come. And they did. In fact, it got dangerous. Sometimes the Holy Spirit come on them, and I have to keep them out of the water lest they go to heaven too soon. <laughs> they just kind of collapse. One guy was a big guy. He must have been about 6'2", six, 6'3", six, probably 250 pounds. He came up out of the water. He was so happy, he grabbed it and put a bear hug on me and flipped me around the baptistry. I'm telling you, that's when people need to get filled with the Spirit when they get baptized, when they're coming into faith in Christ. And that's how people need to become disciples. That's the first step of discipleship. And then you begin to teach them to walk in Jesus' way. And listen, when you get somebody who's baptized in water and filled with the Spirit, I'm going to tell you, it's much easier to teach them because they have such a hunger for God. Listen, two things happen to us when the Spirit comes to live in our lives. What did Paul say to the Philippian church? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for God is at work in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. You have a new desire, and you have a new power. You want to please God. And secondly, you can do it. You've got the power. That's there. Then you begin to teach them the ways of Jesus. And so it is that that's, that first stage is so, that's so fundamental. It's make disciples. Then raise up leaders. Develop leaders. Nurture the church. Help people understand how they fit in the body of Christ. There are no appendices in the body of Christ. We need every one. We all have a part. We all have gifts of the Spirit. We have something to contribute. Teaching them that, then God raises up certain leaders. And so the leaders begin to mold. That's phase two. Then stage three is we begin to plant groups and community groups, whatever you want to call them, churches. And then third, fourthly, you begin to send workers, which you guys are doing. You're doing all four of those things. Do it more. When we had, we had a prayer time at the beginning of the first service, did you do it at the beginning of the second service? No, that's the first service. Okay, you come early, you, you're, you're hearing music, and you're just praying and saying, Lord, I'm here to hear from you. And then they all gathered up in the front, and they said, well, what did you hear? Well, I'm going to tell you what I heard. I didn't tell them, but I'm going to tell you. The Lord said, I am pleased with this church. I'm pleased with you, but I'm not satisfied. God, isn't that wonderful? He's pleased, but there's more. There's more. And so it is. I believe the church in Antioch back then and today, and this church is a church that God is going to mold and is going to make not only just a church that is, how can I say, health, healthy, but it's also going to be a reproductive church. It's going to be reproducing. It's going to be reproducing. And it's not, listen, it's not so much that we're going to get so big. I think it's just a matter of multiplication. You're going to multiply. My mom is four foot eleven, but she had four kids, and I think between us we must have weighed about I don't know how tall we were. We were all much bigger than my mom eventually, 
but she multiplies. Okay? By the way, you know, that, you know that when you came to Jesus, it's because he called you. You didn't call him first. He's been seeking you before you ever sought him. Is that true? Yep, that's true. And so it is. He's called you because he's chosen you. It says you were, you were chosen him before the foundation of the world. He's chosen us. He's called us. You know why? He'll tell you why. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I chose you that you might go and bear fruit and your fruit will remain. How can you be fruitful and re have remaining fruit unless it multiplies? Yeah, and so it is. We are called to be fruitful and multiply. I think, isn't that what God said to, Ab to, to Adam and Eve? Be fruitful and multiply. And then after the flood, he said that to Noah and his family, be fruitful and multiply. He says that to his people today. And he said that to his disciples. Go, be fruitful, and multiply. That's what I believe God is doing in this church. And he's pleased with you. But he's saying there's more. There's more that's coming. So be encouraged. Be encouraged. God is at work among you. Praise God. Let's pray. Lord, I just am amazed that you have saved us. Lord, some of us felt we weren't worthy of saving. Well, none of us are. But Lord, you gave us Forgiveness, you've forgiven us of all of our sins, all of our sins, past, present, and future. You've given us new life, life that's eternal. It's your life. It's abundant, and it's eternal. And, Lord, you've given us not only forgiveness and abundance of life, and, Lord, you are now you're, you're actually leading us into being a part of that which is your purpose in the world, that, Lord, we might see people of every tongue, tribe, kindred, and nation, Come to faith in you and become followers of you. We're making disciples of all nations. Lord, I pray that this, this, this congregation will be an active part of that. Lord, I thank you that our personal stories are a part of your greater story. And your great story is that you have come to seek and to save the lost. You've come that none be lost. Your will is that not any perish, but all come to repentance. And so we pray, Lord, give us the privilege, we pray. Help us to catch it that, Lord, we are a part of your eternal purpose, of your global vision. And we give you thanks, Lord, for what you're doing. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Thank you. Yeah. <laughs>